Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, Dr. Smith will be speaking to Dr. Mohammed Shaban about his article, Epidemiology and Trends of Anaphylaxis in the United States, 2004 to 2016. This edition of Scope It Out is made possible by support from Aranex, makers of the Clarifix cryotherapy device. A breakthrough solution for chronic rhinitis patients, Clarifix offers ENT physicians an advanced, minimally invasive approach to effectively treat patients suffering from chronic rhinitis. Visit us at www.clarifix.com. That's www.clarifix.com. Hello and welcome to Scope It Out the podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your host, Dr. Tim Smith, and today I'm very happy to be joined by Mohammed Shaban from Galveston, Texas, and we'll be discussing his article, which is currently available online and is entitled Epidemiology and Trends of Anaphylaxis in the United States, 2004 to 2016. Mohammed, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Tim, for interviewing me. It's an honor to be here with you, definitely. Well, thank you. Thank you. Your study I found to be very interesting. I honestly didn't know a lot about the public health perspective of anaphylaxis and in what patient populations anaphylaxis is more likely to occur, how often anaphylaxis results in hospitalization, and then some of the trends in anaphylaxis over the last, you know, many years, couple decades in particular. And your article hits on all of those areas. Tell me what brought you to your interest in anaphylaxis and why did you decide to study it this way? Yes, I think, I mean, obviously there are several reasons why I really studied anaphylaxis. One of them is I was really tasked with presenting on anaphylaxis. And so at the time, obviously, I was worried about my son. He had three anaphylactic reactions to uh, tree nuts. So I was looking at more like, like pediatric and, you know, increase in the pediatric population of anaphylaxis and together with obviously my interest in conducting more like, uh, you know, database studies, I felt like this is an area that was, that we have some knowledge gap, particularly when it comes to over here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. If you see most studies are done in Europe because they have really good databases that capture anaphylaxis, even mortality rates as well. We currently yeah. don't have that in the U.S., so I felt like that this there's a knowledge gap in here and that would be nice to study this from the, uh, the U.S. perspective. As you know, there there is really an epidemic in the whole world in terms of uh, anaphylaxis. Everywhere, if you look at the U.K., Europe, Australia... And it was nice for me just to kind of, you know, look at what's happening really in the U.S. over the last... Yeah, that is interesting. I'm sorry to hear about your son. Uh, how, how? I'm just curious, the perspective of a parent who has a, a child with a tree nut allergy, what, what kind of precautions do you have to take? I mean, in school and, and play dates and all that kind of stuff. I, 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 I'm assuming your son's the same age as one of my sons. Maybe he's uh, younger or older. Yeah, he's five years old, actually, and I just left, actually, we had a challenge test today. We're trying to challenge him with with tree nut allergy. We were doing the walnut today. He actually failed, unfortunately, so but uh, so there are several precautions. What happens with tree nut allergy is some of them, there is cross-reactivity, Yeah. and that's the problem is he is allergic, like, for example, I'm just giving examples of um, 
to pistachios. The problem with that is there's a lot of cross-reactivity with uh, cashews, for example. And in addition, obviously, hazelnut, and now we know walnut as well. And right. what happens is a lot of tree nut products in the U.S., they are there's a lot of cross-contamination in there. So you, you really make sure that you select products that are really very pure extracts or like in, if they were like in milk bottles, milk uh, products or anything. And obviously the second thing is most important in school is especially during parties when they're doing like, you know, birthday parties or even any other occasion, usually we bring our own food. And sometimes, yeah. unfortunately, we had to miss some days because everyone is bringing, he's got egg allergy as well. So it's really bad. So either yeah. cakes that have allergy, there's baked egg allergy and there's regular egg. It's different protein, but usually most patients are allergic to both at the beginning and then they outgrow one of them and then they outgrow eggs at the end. I mean, when they're like a little older, at least age eight and older. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I've i suffered, fortunately my children have been okay, but I suffered anaphylaxis as a child. And I guess within the context of your paper, it would fall within the idiopathic realm because I had actually eaten pistachios that day, I think for the first time. And... This was several hours later, however, I had, you know, classic anaphylactic symptoms that caused my parents to rush me to the emergency room where they gave me a couple of doses of epinephrine, and I stabilized and was able to go home. I assumed after that that I could not eat pistachios. Uh, (laughs) Now, no allergist could really understand this because I ate every other kind of nut that was out there, and they said that that didn't make sense based on the, you know, cross-reactivity. But, man, I'll tell you, when you eat a pistachio and then you have what is anaphylaxis, you link those two pretty strongly in your mind, and I just wasn't willing to eat pistachios. I got a challenge done in an unusual situation. A good friend of mine named Al Maradi, who's actually the president of the American Academy of Otolaryngology, had neck surgery right now. Yeah, he's a he's a close friend of mine, and he invited me to his home once, where his Al is his family is Persian, and his mom was in town, and she was she was making a a feast uh, for a group of people that Al invited over, and I was eating these little cookies before dinner started. They were a little appetizer. They were absolutely delicious. I probably ate ten of them. And I remember asking Al, I said, Al, I love those little cookie things. What are those made of? And he said, pistachios. And I said, well, Al, I had an anaphylactic reaction to pistachios when I was a child. And he looked at me and said, Tim, I'm an airway doctor, so you're in a good place. (laughs) But fortunately, fortunately, I had no reaction to pistachios, and I've eaten them liberally ever since. So I'm assuming my, my anaphylaxis was... Uh, you know, idiopathic, as you've categorized in your pa- exactly. paper. Or you just pass a challenge test. You never yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you studied in your paper almost half a million anaphylaxis cases. So that is a large uh, number. Tell us about some of the trends that, that you saw in anaphylaxis, you know, over that decade and a half that you studied. Yes, yeah, so basically what I found was that there was an overall increase in the incidence of anaphylaxis over the, the time period that we studied, and that was also coupled by a stable rate of hospitalization of 2.8%, which is good. 
obviously the obvious things in there and like the etiologies also played a big role in terms of really the changing incidence of anaphylaxis. For example, we saw food was increasing, the venom has been you know decreasing with time, but the food and in pediatric population has really been an interesting finding in our study in terms of this increase in the incidence. Yeah. Yeah, the food allergies went up really dramatically during that time, yeah, didn't they? Exactly. Uh, like almost 200 per, almost a 200 percent increase. Yes. Now, is this, Mohammed? Is this just because the you used ICD-10 coding for this in this huge database, which covered tens of millions of individuals? But is it is it because our codes got better? Or is there a true is there a true increase in the incidence? So that's a great question. So what really changed from the ICD-9 to ICD-10 is mostly in the medication-induced anaphylaxis. Yeah. Um, that was added in ICD-10 codes. The rest of the codes, unfortunately, which is really, it's really bad. I mean, the ICD-9 codes. I'll give you an example for venom allergy uh, anaphylaxis. It is non-specific. So if anyone has was bitten by like a B, and they had a bad reaction, and they can code it as a venom uh, adverse event, and that could go into anaphylaxis, unfortunately. So, But the mm. codes have changed only in the medication-induced anaphylaxis, so the foods, they're pretty much stayed the same. That's why I think, at least in the foods, we can follow the trend over the years, and there's not much of it, like 2015, with the ICD-10 codes change in the trends. Got it. Got it. Okay. You also said that hospitalizations stayed more or less the same over that time period. Correct. And that that's during a time period where, if anything, hospitalizations, you know, the indications for hospitalization seem to decline every year, meaning we're doing more and more things as outpatients. And I wondered if even though the hospitalizations were stable, it actually represented some kind of an increase relative to the fact that the number was stable. Does does that make sense? Yes, definitely. I think in addition, because there was, if you look at the etiologies, like for example, venom hospitalization decreased 77%. Medication-induced anaphylaxis, there was a huge rise, and then the food actually decreased some as well. So overall, we're looking at a stable trend, but if you really go into etiologies, everything was different in terms of right. etiologies. It was fascinating, as you said, mostly we're doing like more observation, maybe 23-hour ops. The 23-hour ops, I was trying to point out, does not, like our inpatient population that we, took, we looked at does not include the ops for 23 hours or anything like that. Right, right, I see. So really, it would only include hospitalization beyond 23-hour ops, exactly. which is what most people would probably be admitted for is, is more likely a, an observation period. Absolutely. Exactly. That, was one of the things, that was one of the things I was wondering about because, you know, you think about anaf- the treatment of anaphylaxis and receiving epinephrine, for instance, and then, of course, we often discuss the late-phase reaction that can occur and that you have to monitor patients for six to eight hours, or the late-phase reaction could start six to eight hours later, and that was the rationale for hospitalizing folks. But actually, only a very small minority of folks get hospitalized with anaphylaxis. Exactly. At least by the 
by the definition of, you know, greater than a 23-hour ob. Exactly. Okay. Okay, that helps, I think, make sense out of that. What do you make out of the increase in food allergy? Is that a coding? The medication one very well could be that we now have an ICD-9 or ICD-10 code for medication-induced anaphylaxis. What do you make about the food allergy? I think the food allergy, by and large, if you look at the CDC report, there's really an increase really annual increase. And the last study, I think they showed 18% increase in uh, the incidence of food allergies. So it does go with an overall increase in food allergies, particularly in patients who talk about less than 18 years old, like pediatric yeah. population. So it yeah. does go along with, when we looked at other studies, we see like it does go along with the increase in food allergies. And yeah. it, it doesn't have to do with the codes because it was exact same. There wasn't any, obviously the codes excess has changed, but not like the actual etiology. Nuts and seed were the most, there was the most increase, 166%. There was increase in shellfish as well and peanuts. So Mm -hmm. it is very odd because if you look at the pediatric criteria for like when to introduce those foods, they have changed over that time period as well. They used to introduce foods later. Now we're going back, back to doing earlier. I'm not sure which one is really better, like four months or six months introduction of like food, uh, so um, we really don't know exactly when when to start the food and whether or not that avoids. Most studies have been done on peanuts, actually. Yeah, yeah, it seems like peanuts, there's a lot of new information around yeah. peanut allergies and treatment of peanut allergies, and I know it's just, it's such a huge issue in the, in the school systems. Absolutely. So um, your, your, your database, included over 200 million patients. So this is a pretty, I would assume, a pretty darn representative sample of the United States. Yes, we had about 15, uh, like an average 15 million enrollees. And it's like based on a single large insurance-based claims database. And basically, we had about 15 million enrollees every year, which is really helpful because you need that kind of population, especially for these allergies, which are not, you know, you cannot study them in a small population. It has to be represented right. of the whole U.S. Right, right. And yours is really the first study to look at certainly this large of a population with anaphylaxis. Is that is that safe to say? Yes, mostly as well as obviously including ICD-10. And more importantly in my mind is the setting of the anaphylaxis. Most studies in the U.S. particularly, now in Europe they have done others, but in the U.S. they have not looked at inpatient and outpatient. So in my study I also included inpatient and outpatient as opposed to just only emergency room settings. That's why our rates are a little bit higher than what we Mm. see in other, in the literature. And I think because the setting was limited to just emergency room visits for anaphylaxis. Right. And for us to make sure these are really incident cases, we actually looked back 12 months prior to their incident anaphylactic event, and we made sure that they had no event at the time. Obviously, there's always some limitations when you look at databases. Right. But that was a kind of a clean way to make sure it's really an incident case, uh, particularly in the pediatric population. This database is known as the Clinformatics Data Mart or the CDM. How did you how did you access this database? So basically, we have in the Department of Epidemiology here does a lot of outcome based studies and comparative effectiveness. 
Yeah. And they do it on mostly like on like opioids and on testosterone for men and men's health. And basically, I just, you know, one day we were looking at, we were doing obviously balloon sinoplasty, comparative effectiveness, which was kind of tough to do because it is very hard to uh, really look at the severity of chronic sinusitis. As you know, it's we don't have that defined very well in, yeah. in our our literature. Then all of a sudden, I came with that idea based on my my search, and because I had needed to give a presentation on anaphylaxis, I was like, I need to know more information. Yeah. And obviously, my son was also drive for me to look at. Um, I now obviously deal with a lot of in the department of epidemiology, and we do some studies using that database, which I find very helpful. No, it seems like a a really nice resource that I wanted to elucidate it for the other folks who might be listening who are commonly looking at, you know, appropriate databases to study diseases such as this that aren't the most common that you need to study, you know, looking at certainly millions of of patients, which is what you've done here. Mohammed, any other points that uh, we've not brought out that you'd like to, to bring out relative to this study? In this study, I basically, we covered most of everything, I think, mm-hmm. in, in the most important points we did cover. And just one point regarding the hospitalizations for the older population, I think yeah. what we're really seeing is that increase in the influx and the increase in medicalization of these patients. That could be a reason why medication-induced anaphylaxis was on the rise, in addition right. to, obviously, the ICD-10 code. Yeah, but I think also it has to do with with the baby boomers really generation aging. Right. Yeah. So probably multifactorial the reasons for that medication induced anaphylaxis result that was is so dramatic in your study. That's correct. Well, Mohammed, thank you so much uh for for joining me today and and discussing these results. I certainly wish your son the best moving forward. I hope that there are some good solutions to to these problems for him. And obviously, there's a substantial proportion of our population who has to be concerned about anaphylactic events and prepare themselves for it. So thank you so much for, for your research and for joining me today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me here. I would like to take the opportunity to thank all my authors as well who really worked hard in getting this done. Thank you so much. Great. Your article is certainly available uh, online and can be searched via PubMed or at the IFAR website. So thank you again, Mohammed. Thank you for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of Dr. Smith and his guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or of the sponsors.